morning and a story that we get so used to sometimes that we, we read it and we move on as if, yeah, okay, we understand that. But help us to see some of the things that we need to today. Speak to our hearts in the, in the, in the way in which each and every one here needs it. I pray, Father, your blessing upon your word as we study this morning. I ask for your safety for those who aren't here, for those who are still journeying to get to family and friends. I pray that you would watch over them. I pray that you would bring us together here tonight again as we continue on in your word this Christmas Eve. I pray your blessing upon this time, and I give you thanks, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, just a couple of quick things. You'll notice some staging on the other side of the courtyard here. They began work on the roof just in time for the snow. Um, but they are going to be putting the new roof on over the next couple of weeks. So next weekend, more than likely, the staging is going to be on this side on the walkway. So we would ask that as you come in, either you be very careful coming in the front, or if we would just use the back coming into the cafe, that probably would be preferable. We'll make sure that that is a safe and a clear entrance next Sunday. Um, but they will be working on that for the next couple of weeks. So I just wanted to let you in on that as to why it is we've got some scaffolding and staging going on over there. Um, God bless them. They showed up. I think it was Thursday. It was about five degrees without the wind, and they were up on that roof putting tarps down and taking the trim off. And it's not something that I'd want to do. It's not something you would want me to do either. Um, it's just not something that... Uh, I think that I would find myself enjoying, but just be prayerful for them as they're up there as well because the weather doesn't look like it's going to be very good for the next couple of weeks, but it's a project that needs to be done. So I came here Thursday, as Deb knows, not feeling very well. Um, having both of my Christmas Eve services written and all set and all taken care of only to discover that they were garbage, um, I read through them and didn't even know where I was going with it, and I wrote them. So I felt that it was best that maybe we take them out of my notebook and put them where they really belong so that they wouldn't do any more harm than they already had, and that's in the garbage. So I sat down Thursday morning once again and just went back to my notes and, and in prayer and asked the Lord, okay, what's going on here? And uh, we started all over again, and it, it turned out, I, I pray, at least a little bit better. Um, if nothing else, I know at least where we're going. And I want us to continue on as we've been looking at the fear not series this this advent season i've titled the message for this morning and for this evening and it's a continuation of this morning unto you this day very simply unto you this day and what we're going to be looking at both this morning and this evening is that in the fullness of time has finally come the fullness of time has come and in humility and in insignificance god moves his plan forward for this entire planet and that's something that we really need to get our hands around because this Advent season, we've been looking at these statements, as most of you recall, if you've been here, made by the angel to have no fear. Fear not, he kept saying, mostly through the eyes of those to whom Luke gives us in the first chapter and the second chapter here um, in his gospel. Matthew, uh, Joe came last week and spoke about Joseph as well. And the Advent season itself, I know that some people look at it and go, we don't do that because others do that. I'm not that type of person. I think that the Advent season itself is incredibly important for us to just take a look at because it is supposed to be a season of rest where we step back and we take a deep breath and we reflect and we rest it's supposed to be a season of waiting and of contemplating on what it is the Lord has done for us over the past year and what it is he's about to do as we enter into the Christmas season and revisit this story that I think needs to be visited more than just at Christmas time. 
so that we can understand what the incarnation, the coming of the Son of God is really all about. We're supposed to reflect on just what it is God has done in and through these people that we're learning about in the Gospel of Luke and in the giving of His Son to the world. We learned that the very first week we were here in Isaiah. And it's important. It is absolutely essential, I say, that we put aside the busyness of our lives. Even if we just take a little bit of time to put aside the busyness of our lives and our day-to-day routines, just to take a step back. And I know that that's hard for us to carve out, but it's essential that we do, most especially in a world that is just so busy, so that we can just sit down and we can quietly reflect and rest and take a look at what this story is all about. And we can ask ourselves just exactly what is it God is doing and what does it mean for me today? It's critical that we do that. And as we unfold this particular portion of the Christmas story this morning and again this evening, I want to encourage you to never get so comfortable with the reading of this story in Luke chapter 2 and in Matthew chapter 1 and 2 and so used to it that we simply look at it as just another tale, not that it's not true, but just another tale that we read that gives us good feelings during the Christmas season. We don't ever want to do that. Although Luke is a wonderful writer, his intention is to bring about those excited feelings and that anticipation as we wait and as we hope for the coming of the Lord Jesus to be born. Like any great writer, he wants to capture us in that realization that after 400 years of absolute silence in Israel, something big is about to happen and the scene is going to break wide open. You see, Zechariah, we learned, he had had his moment in the temple when he brought the incense in and he was confronted with the angel. He doesn't doubt the message that the angel brings to him at all. He simply doubts the method. He's an old geezer. He doesn't really understand how that's going to work. He and his wife haven't been able to have children. Then we discovered Mary, the blessed one, simply asks how this is all going to come about because she understood the mechanics of nature. And then she simply gives her life over to the Lord and says to him, your will be done. An absolute trust and an absolute humility. Don't ever forget that. Don't ever miss out on that. She just looks at the angel and says, I will be the Lord's doula. I will be the Lord's maidservant, whatever he asks of me. And then you got Joseph, that poor fifth wheel, as most of our husbands typically are. He discovers in the midst of it all that, no, Mary isn't making up this story that she's come and decided to say to him and tell him what's going on. But rather, she's actually extremely truthful in her telling him that he too is called to be a part of what it is God is bringing about in his plan in the fullness of time. Which has caused me to sit back and, and wonder, can you imagine the trust between these two very young people? between this Mary and Joseph, that she comes with this story and she says to him, this is what's happened. An angel came to me and said that this is what's going to happen to me. The trust that had to be built between those two in their betrothal season. You see, God knew exactly what it was he was doing. He had Joseph and Mary together for a reason in his goodness and in his providence. And Joseph was a just man, or the NIV says that he was a righteous man. And instead of blowing up on everyone, And blowing up everyone's world by exercising his rights and his authority as the aggrieved party in this whole betrothal thing. He doesn't do that, and that's something that we ought to take to heart and we ought not to miss here. He doesn't destroy everybody's world. Instead, he steps back and he contemplates what it is is being brought to him. He goes home and he wonders exactly what it is Mary has said to him. And that moment gives enough space for the Lord to begin to work in him and send this very busy angel by the name of Gabriel into his life to let him know that everything that Mary has said to him is absolutely true. Now, in all of the Bible, 
This amazing story, when you take a look at it, is packed in less than three chapters. It's like two and a half chapters. The incarnation of Jesus between Matthew and Luke, if you put them together, a total. And it is one of the two foundational pieces to the Christian belief. The incarnation that God has come to dwell among his people in the person of Jesus. And the resurrection of this Jesus of Nazareth. One proves the other. The other one validates the truth of the other. Were it not for the resurrection, we have no reason to believe the virgin birth. Were it not for the virgin birth, the resurrection couldn't happen because Jesus wouldn't be the incarnate Son of God. You see, we're looking here at God come in the flesh, born of a virgin, in order that he may be one of us and die just like we die and struggle the way we do, in order that we can have our way home, promised all the way back in the garden the moment Adam and Eve decided to go the wrong way. And then it was given as a covenant promise to Abraham that through your seed, the world would be saved. See, what Luke is going to tell us here today and this evening is that forgiveness comes to us in a manger. Now, we think that's a quaint little wooden feeding trough and all of that stuff on its own meat with some straw. But you see, forgiveness comes to us in a manger. And that is absolutely key as we take a look at the text. Because it's a paradox. It's absolutely opposite of what this world expects. And we've learned that in the midst of real people in real time, living their lives every single day, not knowing at all what tomorrow holds, just like all of us sitting here this Christmas Eve, 2017, we don't know what tomorrow holds. Joseph and Mary didn't know what tomorrow held either, but they were simply obedient to the call of God in their life. As scary as it seems, if we put ourselves in their position, they were simply obedient to the call of God in their life. The 400 years of silence we've discovered over the last four weeks has been slowly breaking down as each family and each situation is set in motion in order for the promises of God to be fulfilled finally in the fullness of time. And this is one of the things that I noticed as I went back to this text and I studied it over and over and over again here in Luke chapter 2. Packed in these first seven verses is the fulfillment of many, many promises. Although they're not exactly clear and just put right out there, there's a lot of promises that were fulfilled here, ending with the truth that the true king of this world, the true king of this world has a different type of mission, and he sits on an entirely different type of throne. And that's what Luke's painting for us here. All these things Luke gives to us are bringing together God's plan and God's purposes that he set in motion before eternity even began. See, the waiting had begun, as we learned in the days of Ezra and Nehemiah, after the return from exile in Babylon some 450 to 500 years prior to the birth of Jesus. We learn that in the midst of that, when the prophetic words of Isaiah the prophet come to pass in the person of Cyrus the king, when he sends back the people of Israel, God was delivering his people once again, bringing them out of exile through a new exodus back home. They were going home and the waiting for the Messiah king was to begin because they knew that God had promised to them that it would happen. How do they know that and why do they know that? Because they saw his faithfulness in everything that was going on in their life. They saw his faithfulness in their return from exile. They saw his faithfulness in the rebuilding of the temple, in the rebuilding of the city, in the restoring of the wall through Nehemiah and all of those people in those short days. And they knew the prophecies that spoke about this coming Messiah, this coming king. And so the people of Israel settled in and they waited and they prayed and they waited and they prayed. 400 years they waited for God to act on their behalf. 400 years. 
Do you know where the United States of America was 400 years ago? It wasn't 400 years ago. 400 years they waited for God to act. So be careful when you get frustrated because God hasn't answered your prayers this week. Be careful. God has promised to answer whatever prayer is prayed. He will do so in his time. Never think for a minute that he isn't faithful. The people of Israel never thought that he wasn't faithful. He promised to answer prayer and he will answer prayer. Now Alfred Edersheim in his book, Jesus, The Life and Times of Jesus the Messiah, talks about the people of Israel and what they were thinking with regards to the coming of this Messiah. And they decided and discovered that it was really nothing that they could bring about themselves. They couldn't do so by trying to ensure that they were perfect following all of the rules as much as they hoped that that would be the case by being obedient to the law or by putting the right people in the right positions on any given time within the temple and within the kingship. And then he would just show up because they've done the right things and all of the stars aligned by human effort. It's not how it works. You see, Edersheim says this, the time of Messiah's coming depended not on repentance nor on any other condition. And that kind of upset me and unsettled me. Now, let's think about that. The time of Messiah's coming depended not on repentance nor on any other condition. It's nothing we do. Nothing we do. Edersheim says that it is contingent upon the mercy of God. And when the time fixed had arrived. It has to do with what God says, and it has to do with his mercy and his grace towards you and me in the midst of all of these things. There's nothing we can do in order to earn God's favor. You see, he brings it in the fullness of time. And it had finally arrived, and God was going to use the powers that be in the world at that time to bring about his plan and achieve his ends because Luke tells us in those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration that Quirinius, when Quirinius was governor in Syria. Right away, straight off the bat, we are introduced to the man that the empire believed was their ultimate deliverer. Any of you who know your ancient Roman history will know this. You see, Augustus, the adopted son of Julius Caesar, the one that Shakespeare made famous, He was the bringer of peace, and he was the bringer of stability to the entire Roman Empire. Wants to count his subjects now for whatever reason he wants to do this. And oddly enough, right around 43 to 44 BC, I think it was, I can't really remember, when his father was killed, Julius Caesar, by Mark Antony and his cohorts right there in the Senate, Augustus ascended, and he decides to deify his father. Make him a god, as it were. And conveniently enough, in the process, what do you think that does for Augustus? He deifies himself in the midst of that process. Known throughout the entire empire at that time as, guess what? The Son of God. Augustus decides his throne is quite secure and he wants to count his people and that his reign is divinely ordained. See, I find that contrast here by Luke in these first seven verses to be very, very big and very, very clear. Because here we find a man in Rome ordering the moving of entire people groups to be counted with a king, the king of the universe, in fact, about to be born in an obscure little place with two young people as his parents who are completely insignificant in the eyes of the entire world. What a contrast Luke is painting for us here. 
Because he continues that all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem. Because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. How often do you wake up in the morning and panic when things aren't quite going the way they ought to go? Pretty much every day, we get unsettled. We probably do that far more than we ought to. We worry and we fuss and we get upset because things aren't going just the way in which we expect them to. But here we have two young people in Joseph and Mary in the wrong place at the wrong time and in absolutely no real condition to make the journey south. But yet off they go to Bethlehem packing up their little Edsel, you know, donkey's name is Edsel, whatever, and we get ourselves ready to go south. All because the self-declared son of God, completely unbeknownst to him, has just set the stage in the entire known world in order for the world's true king to arrive in the right place in the fullness of time. Because some 700 years prior to this event, about the same time that Isaiah the prophet was writing all the things he was saying, another small prophet by the name of Micah penned these words, but you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. This is no accident. You see, the other son of God in the fullness of time is about to enter his world. This guy in Rome thinks he owns the whole show. No, the one who created the whole show was about to break in and let everyone know he's here in a really bizarre way. He is leaving his rightful place in eternity and in glory in exchange for a barn in a backwater, no-name town, too small to be noticed by anybody on planet Earth at the time for any reason other than those who in Israel would know that that's where David, their king, came from. That's the only claim to fame this little town of Bethlehem has is that David the king came from there. And you see the contrast that Luke is trying to put together here for us? The way the world does its business and the way that God who created this world does his business. Totally opposite. We need to remember here, and this is important for us, most especially as we are unsettled, and we've been talking about this now for almost two years. We need to remember here that Augustus ruled because God gave him the authority to do so. It was no accident that he was sitting on that throne. He was given the authority to rule by God. And in God's goodness and in his providence, he puts people and he puts rulers in place. Not so we can accomplish our ends and get our way. Just as an aside, we need to get that. It is for God's purposes and for God's timing. He has our times in his hands the scriptures tell us. And absolutely nothing in this universe is outside of his care. And that ought to bring great settling to us today, and it ought to bring great comfort to us in the midst of a whole bunch of chaos and uncertainty that there is nothing in this entire universe that is outside of the care of God. He has everything in the palm of his hands. And this is why Joseph and Mary, as well as Zechariah and Elizabeth, could do what they did. They understood the truth. And we need to get that into our spirits and let it settle because they were just very young people. And Luke is letting us know that what's unfolding here is not some cosmic accident. 
that he pieced together in order to make a really good story. But rather, in the fullness of time, God is bringing about his redemption plan. This is exactly as God wanted it. The son is about to be given. And there's no need of fear. And there's no need to have any unsettled spirit. He is truly the king. No matter what anybody thinks. You see, this then destroys the fundamental notion that a lot of us wrestle with today. That by putting the right person in the right place at the right time for what we think to be the right reasons, we can thereby bring about the second coming of Jesus. Creating certain events and all of that stuff. It can't be done. See, God has everything in his control. And he is sovereign in all of these things. Our job as his people, if you belong to Jesus, is to walk every day in the task that he gives you to walk in. To the best of your ability, to the obedience of God, through the power of the Holy Spirit, to the glory of the name of Jesus. That's our job. That's our job. God is sovereign in the rest. Let him do his work. See, Mary and Joseph, we find here, they're completely obedient to the edict that's been given, and they pack up their donkey, and they head on south to go to Bethlehem. It's not a real clean picture, but there you have it nonetheless, and I can only imagine the thoughts in their minds as they're getting themselves ready to go. Even the emperor himself obeys the command of God. Do you remember the prophecy, Joseph? You know the one about Bethlehem? I do, Mary, I do, and God's will be done. God's will be done as we head south. See, God in his mercy and his grace sends forth Jesus, his son. Not because of anything we have done, but because of his mercy and his grace. Luke tells us that while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son. And she wrapped him in swaddling cloths and she laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. The self-proclaimed son of God Caesar Augustus, moving his kingdom, all in order that the true Son of God, Jesus of Nazareth, leaving his rightful throne in eternity, can enter our world. That's what's going on here. Insignificant, completely obscure, little town of Bethlehem. Two young people, at some particular time, slip in under the radar, simply obeying the rules. They find themselves to be new parents to the eternal king. All right under the nose of all the powers that be. What a story. It's a great story. It's even better because it's true. It's a great story. All of this is in these first seven verses. We have Augustus. We have Quirinius, who is simply obedient as a governor. We have Joseph, we have Mary, we have Bethlehem, we have David, we have the ancient promises of God all unfolding here and ending with a manger, a manger. Three times Luke tells us about that, we'll learn more about that tonight, but three times in this chapter he talks about this manger, this little bed. That means that there's something about this dirty little feeding trough that we really need to get our hands around and that we really need to understand, especially this Christmas season, because it is another contrast against the way in which the world does its business, does politics, and handles power. See, N.T. Wright puts it this way. The manger is a signpost. It's a pointing finger to the identity and task of a baby boy who's lying in it. Now, the shepherds, and we'll learn about them tonight, the shepherds 
summoned in from the fields, like David, the shepherd boy, brought in from the fields to be anointed king, are made privy to the news so that Mary and Joseph, hearing it from an unexpected source, will have extra confirmation of what up until now has been their secret. And the sign that was given to them was a manger. Not a gold throne, not a huge palace, a dirty old feed trough, probably full of hay and whatever else. God doesn't do things the way we do things. Not ever. Don't think for a minute that he operates the way we do. His entrance into this world would be no different. Samuel, that prophet of old, having made the mistake over and over again of judging people based upon how they look on the outside and the words that they use every once in a while. He's moving forward in that way once again as he's sent to to Bethlehem. He discovers that he's making that mistake when he goes to anoint a new king at God's command. Being sent to Bethlehem, he finds Jesse with his seven sons ready to be presented to him. Not one of them fit the bill. They all look right. They all fit the part, but none of them fit the bill. Why? Because that's another signpost as to how God does his kingdom work. You see, it is God who qualifies the one whom God calls. And that is essential for us to understand. So what you look like on the outside when you are called, how skilled or unskilled you are, when God says to you, step into this role, is irrelevant. He's looking for obedience. He's looking for humility and submission. He qualifies you once he calls you because he knows what's going on inside. It doesn't matter how good we look on the outside. See, Mary and Joseph were young, very young, and they were short on experience. Think on that. They were short on experience and skill, but they had a deep trust and obedience that they were doing what God called them to do. David is the last little runt of the litter brought in from the fields. So all you little ones here, don't think that this is beyond your reach either. I know that we've got some kids in the back today. Don't think that you are beyond God's reach. David wasn't even qualified to be called to the party. He's the runt of the litter out in the field watching the sheep. Too insignificant in the eyes of his family to be even asked to come in. And yet, God says to Samuel when he walks in after he's been called in, Arise, arise, anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took a horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. You see, so what Luke records for us here in chapter 2 is not a new way in which God operates. It's the exact same way God has always operated from the beginning. He calls who he wants. He uses who he wants. What he needs is obedience. What he needs is humility. What he needs is people to trust that when he calls them, he will qualify them. David the shepherd king comes from guess where? From the hills of his little town in Bethlehem to be made king. It's fitting then that as we close this morning, it's very fitting when we think about this, that the son given to us that Isaiah prophesied about will find himself placed on or rather into this little manger, his first throne. That's what this is. His first throne. In in the same exact insignificant backwater town of Bethlehem, God is letting the world know that I do things differently. 
the son of all eternity, the son of God, the creator of the universe, deity. Humility. He leaves everything that he owned so he could be a little baby. Humanity. The son is given to us in order that we may have hope in order to come home. And yet kingly at the same time being placed in the manger. His very first throne here on earth. All signposts pointing all the way forward to his ultimate throne, that cross just outside another hill in a place called Jerusalem. As the worship team comes up, I'd like to close in one last song. Who would have known in looking at this story how true Simeon's words were that the rising and the falling of many will be brought about by this little baby boy born some 2,000 years ago? But that is exactly what has happened. And we're going to discover this evening that this is about to be announced to some of the most unsuspecting people. Those shepherds that are in the field. I want to encourage you as you go home today and you prepare for Christmas and you sit around for your Christmas Eve meals. Think on these things. Look at this story again and ask yourself how God does his business. Jesus could have come any way he wanted to come, could he not? I leave that with you to think about today. He could have come with all the pomp and circumstance that we see with every king and queen's coronation in the world. Luke tells us no. That's not how it's going to be. We're going to sneak in under the radar, forced to go to a place that we need to be in order that my son can be born in a barn more than likely, not because there wasn't so much room, but because nobody really wanted the outcasts of the family because, you know, it was questionable. It was not quite a clean situation. And yet there they found themselves in the goodness and the providence of God, protected, watched over. And we're going to have another announcement tonight when an angel shows up to a bunch of guys sitting around a fire on a hill that is going to change their world and the rest of this world forever. We could stand.